out here in the perimeter, there are no stars. Out here, we is stoned, immaculate. Hello and welcome. This is the C86 Show. I'm David Eastall. As you know, we love a special guest. This week, it's going to be the turn all the way from America, the thin white rope, because I recently spoke to Roger Conkle very recently to find out more about life, love and poetry and all that other groovy stuff. Anyway, this is the interview. Um, For those who may have come across Thin White Rope, well, you know, well done. Anyway, they did an awful lot of albums in the uh, 80s and early 90s and uh, Roger's still going. So, yes, you can find out more information if you Google Thin White Rope. Um, But, uh, yes, yes, so the first bit, you know, lots of chat about life, love and all that other groovy stuff. And then we got down to that very exciting subject that was the early formative years. Roger, it's over to you. Well, when I was really young, I, you know, I I first got interested in guitar uh, via my dad listening to uh, Chet Atkins. So that was, you know, mid 60s. And, um, and I did have an older brother and he was the one who started to bring rock and roll records home. So I, you know, I was born in 62. I think uh, I was listening, you know, I was starting to hear CCR and uh, and uh, Led Zeppelin when they came on the scene. And then I sort of retroactively discovered the Beatles yes. <laughs> and uh, those things. And then by the 70s and I, and I became a teenager, I, I, you know, got a lot more interested in playing guitar and electric guitar and, um, yeah. and all the classic rock stuff, you know, was typical. And it wasn't until, uh, you know, high, middle of high school when I started discovering uh, Iggy Pop and, and The Clash and the Sex Pistols and all this sorts of music. Um, and then uh, at, at about the same time, uh, well, maybe I'm jumping ahead too 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 fast, but uh, it. I lived in a town not far from Davis, and you know, if you're familiar, you know Davis had a, a, a has a, a college radio station KDVS, and um, we could we could hear it on the radio just faintly, and um, realized there was actually a, a radio station that was playing that kind of music, you know, because everything else was just you know, AOR. FM radio and uh, we didn't you know see uh, you know we were too young to go to the city to go to shows at night and things like that yes well your was your pet were your parents quite of a, a musical was it quite a creative house that you were brought up in not really I'm sort of the outlier of the family um, well although I'll give my dad credit I guess when he was a kid he sang in the choir and um, and I had an I had an aunt who was a vaudeville vaudeville performer, right? Uh, but my dad, you know, my my dad was a, uh, a a military guy. He was in the Air Force as a pilot for most of his career. Yes. And um, and consequently, we moved around the country a bit. And but uh, he liked that, you know, sort of slick commercial country, you know, of the early sixties. 
Jim Reeves and Patsy Cline and, and stuff like that, you know. Oh, I'm, I'm pleased you mentioned Jim Reeves because my, my dad was very into Jim Reeves and people like <laughs> Boxcar Willie and, uh, and all right. those kind of classic kind of um, Crystal Girl and Charlie Pride. So, mm -hmm. um, so he played that quite a bit during that sort of early, the sort of 60s and 70s. And, and being from a sort of working class background, I mean, when my parents got together, I suppose, in the 50s, I think it was that thing that you just sold with your possessions. So I think he had sort of a record player and Elvis records and those kind of rock and roll things. Um, Teresa Brewer, I think was one of those artists he loved, but they kind of sold all those. And it wasn't until the early seventies that a record player appeared back in our lives. Up to then we were just listening to radio and mostly this was called Radio 2, you know, the BBC. And it was mostly that kind of easy listening soft pop. So my mum would be working away in the kitchen and doing all that kind of stuff that housewives did in those days before, you know, washing machines and appliances that, you you know, women had to work quite hard in the house. So I kind of heard all this kind of soft pop and became quite excited about the world of Burt Backrack and then I think the Carpenters and, and people like that, which, you know, and Scylla Black. So that kind of, um, yes, that was on, but then it was kind of the top of the pops and it was the Alice Cooper and School's Out and this kind of very kind of like, wow. And immediately your parents go, God, what's that? That's awful, you know, you can't tell if they're a boy or girl, you know, they're, you know, they're, and then all that long haired stuff, which just kind of for that Elvis generation. And it's kind of interesting because suddenly every generation has a moment where they become the old dude at the gig, you know, where they go, oh, this isn't very, I can't hear the lyrics, but you know, obviously Elvis was quite radical once and then suddenly he becomes this very, quite a different character, doesn't he? And takes on a different kind of quality and then the Beatles come and then they seem kind of old hat and then fast forward and then punk comes and it's all kind of changed again. So it's kind of interesting how that works. And now I'm circling back to my earliest influences, it seems like, because uh, as I, you know, uh, you know, I've, I've been focusing on just being a guitar player. I've always liked instrumental guitar music. And Chet Atkins was like my introduction to that. And now I'm like, that's the type of thing I'm often find myself trying to, to play lately. And uh, some of the early jazz guitars, you know, and things like that. Yes. So but, it was really, because I was a bit too young for punk, but you you had a few yeah. more years. So you'd have probably just about sort of, caught that wave of interesting music from the sort of the mid mid 70s with people like the New York Dolls and Iggy Pop I guess was coming along and then you had you know in the UK mm. Sex Pistols and Buzzcocks Buzzcocks and the Dams yeah. you had the Ramones didn't you as well yeah the Ramones were probably my first introduction to it all and then when Nevermind the Bollocks came out my neighbor gave me a copy and I was I, I didn't know what to make of it for a while I was uh uh, I was trying to compare it to other bands and I, I couldn't really come up with that much and and uh, it took me a little while. I, I think The Clash sort of broke me in more to the to that sort of sound. Um, and then I realized that there were, you know, Northern California punk bands. Uh, Seven Seconds was one that was playing around at the time, um, you know, but... Um, it took a few years before I was actually going to shows and things like that. Yes. And what was your first show that you went to? Uh, well, the first big, uh, the first real rock concert I, I went to was on my, on my 16th birthday. I went to see Led Zeppelin. <laughs> so I'm still into them at that point. Yes. Uh, 
but uh, yeah, we started coming to what well, well in high school we formed our own bands. I was I was in it's funny like the first band I, I formed was mostly you know your typical high school kids playing hard rock covers, and then we started doing some originals and uh, and then I discovered all this music and like two guys in the band wanted to do punk rock and two wanted to do hard rock, so we were this ridiculous combination of of two of the both. Um, but we uh, at one point uh, uh, formed a, a, a punk band, you know, high school age. And then that's what, like I say, we discovered KDBS and Davis and we started to come here and there were house parties and, uh, and the campus was having, um, you know, all sorts of bands in, in their small little coffee house. Uh, uh, and, you know, they, you know, the, the police on their first tour were there. Uh, I saw Gang of Four there a couple of years later. Um, Iggy, Iggy Pop, um, and uh, um, you know the Bay Area uh, groups. Uh, um, I think it was SBT and um, uh, Pearl Harbor and the Explosions, and I don't know. You know a lot of new wave acts yes. coming out area and stuff you know would, yeah well, uh, where, and where were you sort of picking up kind of coming across you know the sort of punk and new not the new wave but that sort of post-punk world where were you sort of picking up things from like the NME or the British kind of weekly papers or was there other sort of equivalents in in America yeah um well the primary source was the radio station KDBS and uh, house concerts and, and you know getting to know people around around the university scene and stuff. Uh, <clears throat> the Sacramento club scene. Um, uh, and you know didn't make it you know didn't become aware of NME or Melody Maker or those publications until uh, you know a few years later when I was already in uh, in Thin White Rope and, and starting to become more aware of actual bands that do actual shows and 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 make records you know um, so those early times were mostly mostly about uh, um, going to parties with bands and listening to KDBS yes because during that period there was a sort of you know punk kind of lasted for, for a few years before it sort of all gets a bit sort of almost a pastiche and it becomes a bit embarrassing and then you get those bands like you mentioned Gang of Four and Magazine and the Nightingales and um, Public Image Limited which were exciting then as the 80s progressed there was kind of the the early days of people like Julian Cope and then Simple Minds and U2 so there was definitely a sort of a, a bit of a shift towards that world that, that I, I often refer to as indie pop which there were bands like, I don't know, there was postcard records in Scotland, but then there was the orange, you know, orange Juice as well, which were quite influential. But then in Manchester in 83, the Smiths come along. The Smiths come along and that all, I better put this back. And then the Smiths come along and that kind of really changes things kind of 83 time. Um, did you, I mean, when you brought the band together, Thin White wrote, did it sort of gel? Did you get the sort of dynamics and the members quite smoothly. Um, yeah, I mean, it was an odd, a little bit of an odd mix. Um, you know, in, in the early days of the band, uh, we, we had some turnover. In fact, the entire 
career of the band. We had some turnover in the in 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 the membership, but uh, um, Guy was, uh, you know, he had this uh, his background. His his favorite influences, I think, were uh, some old blues stuff, but also like Captain Beefheart and the Velvet Underground, and uh, I think he really liked. Uh, a magazine at the time, um, and uh, a little bit of uh, a little bit of glam <laughs> influenced as well, um, and uh, and you know uh, Steve Tesla, the the bass player, was was a huge Rolling Stones fan, but he also liked all this music. And we but there were bands coming through town, and we'd have you know we find ourselves there and and uh and really liking the same music i'm i'm thinking of you know some of the bands we liked at the time included like the gun club uh green on red um you know it's, 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 by that time I, so this was like i guess it was 82 or 83 82 i guess um, um it seemed like things had splintered quite a bit you know you we had they had sort of the cowpunk meets paisley underground yes <laughs> you know and there was but we were still doing shows at like mabuhe gardens with like you know hardcore punk bands you know so we'd be doing shows like that uh, we played with 45 grave uh, in sacramento in the early version of the dream syndicate there uh, we opened for uh lords of the new church one night you know Excellent. And so, i mean it, it seemed to me during that period they were like a lot of different subgenres already, you know, and then it just continued to multiply from there. But one thing I liked about it was that the the common thread to me seemed like um, just fierce originality was whatever anyone was interested in, and yeah. there weren't that. There wasn't a. I mean, maybe the hardcore scene was pretty insular, uh, you know, and didn't want to. You know, deal with other people that much, but most most clubs were having these shows that were a super eclectic mix of styles and and bands. You know, yes, absolutely. Well, it's kind of interesting because I, I sort of, you know, on one level, the sort of eighties from my perspective was quite simplistic. You know, in the sense of, you know, you had the mainstream charts which had that Trevor Horn production sound and Frankie goes to Hollywood and ABC and Duran Duran and Vandal Valley, and then the alternative scene that I. You know kind of gravitated towards which you know was like the smiths in the indie world and, and we had this dj called john peel who played anything from you know very early public enemy to the bundu boys who are from africa to sort of bulgarian folk music which i kind of loved to, to extreme noise terror which i think if anything anything that john peel played i just assumed this was brilliant and needed to consume and like as well but but then you know as you said there was this, these other sort of extra sub subgroups as well which which is the i suppose the paisley underground or the was it neo psychedelic scene and you know you in the uk we had bands like mood six and medium medium and then a guy called dan tracy who formed wham records which was spelt with a few a's and slightly different to the other band um yeah so but that only lasted a very short time and then other things kind of moved quite quickly because obviously yes 
you know, bands only had that sort of little window to release a few singles on the album. And then another scene came along and there's, there was a lot, you know, I mean, in the late 70s and early 80s, there was, there'd been the two-tone movement and then you had bands like Madness and The Beat and The Specials who, again, did those few years of the 80s and were flying and then they all fall out and that's the end of that scene. So um, it does change quite a bit. So when you, when, when your band sort of got together, because obviously you'd been in different groups, but when you stuck with, you know, the, the, the original members and you thought this is the name, did you then sort of gravitate towards the sound that you thought, yeah, this is going to be, this is going to be us? Yeah, um, not so much um, looking outward, you know, to, to other groups. I mean, we knew we, it was a point at which we, we kind of embraced the, uh, the country influences that we had. Um, which you know, mine went back to childhood, and and so did guys. I and and you know, blues influences too. So um, it was that was somewhat the thing that felt most conscious, I guess, of of like saying, okay, this is more the direction we're going. I think when we first started playing, it was um, it was uh, you know more of a uh, yeah early early 70s uh, um, heavy guitar uh, you know just sort of twisted rock and roll sort of feel and then all of a sudden I think Guy's songwriting style he realized that he was writing in a blues and country sort of style um, and we liked to have uh, the guitars, um, although there was like lots of heavy fuzz and stuff, there was also, you know, clean and clear uh, picking, electric guitar picking going on. Yes. <laughs> and, um, you know, and yeah, and it's it sort of felt the most natural uh, for us to, to embrace that. Um, but we were also, you know, it was funny because we'd throw in a you know a Black Sabbath cover once in a while or something like that. <laughs> and um, in fact, um, somebody I don't know who it was, but we got a review once where the, the person said uh, described us as a cross between Black Sabbath and Johnny Cash, and nice. and we thought that's good. We like that. <laughs> so uh, I guess that was the general motif of things. Um, uh, musically. Yes. Well, it was quite an interesting period because when you brought out your first album and it was Exploring the Axis, wasn't it, in sort of 85, America had sort of, I mean, it was interesting because in Athens, Georgia, you'd had the sort of people like the B-52s and then the Pylons and then R.E.M. So they had sort of their kind of, I mean, I suppose the B-52s was quite a unique sound, but early R.E.M. and the Pylons definitely were quite an arty band really, weren't they? Which was quite mm. interesting to see. So it seems like every little, well not every little, but you know, every kind of state and every kind of city had their kind of almost signature tune really, didn't they? Or signature sound, which was quite influential. And at that stage, but in the, but we were sort of getting fed in the UK with, you know, like your LA rock started to happen and then sort of obviously Billy Joel and then Bruce Springsteen came whopping in with his kind of massive kind of born in the USA. So was it, you know, being a musician at that time, was it quite tricky working out how you were going to navigate that 
that kind of, I suppose, the marketplace? Well, it was, it was definitely uh, an issue that people would talk about, and it was frustrating to us because, you know, when, when we first signed with Frontier Records, um, in fact, uh, somebody just posted a video recently that reminded me of this. It was uh, um, the uh, whistle, what's it called? The Old Grey Whistle Test? Yes, the Old Grey Whistle Test. And um, uh, we were just, you know, starting to play in, in Los Angeles and Frontier Records was interested in the band. And ironically, they had originally heard about us via Bucket Full of Brains, an article in, in there. And, uh, but meanwhile, Island Records was courting Frontier Records uh, to work out a distribution deal. And they were looking for this West Coast, you know, wave of bands. And so uh, everyone always spoke in terms of genre and, and in terms of, you know, a wave of, sty of style. And we kept, they kept trying to figure out if we were, Paisley Underground, or <laughs> punk or what? Um, but we found ourselves lumped in with uh, um, the Long Riders and Rain Parade, and, and um, I think Rain Parade was one of the bands they were interested in. Yeah. But um, and uh, they were going to do this like package deal of these West Coast bands, and we were one of them. And. Uh, and the we felt like the the English sensibility was 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 too like you know was looking for a wave of a certain style, and we weren't you know we weren't part of a wave of a certain style. Uh, we always felt a little bit out of, out of place. We were sort of the oddball band, you know, whenever we played anywhere. It seemed like um, because we didn't like neatly fit into that, uh, that sort of category. Yes. I suppose with maybe, the, maybe every maybe every band feels that way. Yes. Well, I I I mean, as I mentioned at the beginning, that that sort of cassette that came out with the NME, because they would often bring out cassettes and put these kind of collections together, and then and they'd done a country one, a jazz one, an African and reggae one. I seem to remember that I bought them, and then they bought out this indie one, this C eighty six, and. And I think at the time, no one was like, well, I don't know, you can put us on it if you want, you know, you can put us on it if you want. And then it becomes like, oh, there's a scene, you know, which was quite constructive, because actually when you look at the different bands on it, you know, I mean, they do have a slight, slight independent quality, but there's, there's no real sound, I don't think. It's yeah. quite around just the people. Yeah, associated by, by, you know, being in the same place. Yes. Uh, and the same and one band kind of not famously but decided they didn't want to be on the cassette because they didn't want to be associated with it but then didn't realize it was going to be that popular so um kind of always regretted it so when there was a label in this country called cherry red records so when they put these compilations out again they you know they put it out as a triple cd with 66 tracks i mean everybody kind of all those bands who's, who weren't particularly keen at the time were definitely keen to be put on the reissue and um, try and you know mm. slightly increase their exposure, not because they were going to make money from it at all, but just because they just thought, actually, well, it's quite nice that people kind of hear our music. But in the UK, I suppose, being those kind of uh, that generation, and God knows now, but you're always looking for that obscure band that you you, call, you know you want to discover. So I think, you know, be people like Camper Van Beethoven, or they might be Giants of Green on Red, 
the Dream Syndicate or Rain Parade. I mean, you just automatically want to like them. And I remember there was another band called Jason. Is it Jason the Scorchers? Yeah. Yes. I mean, it was just like anything to, to be obscure as possible. So obviously, you know, and it has this great kudos. It's like, oh, wow, this obscure American band. I'm definitely going to check that out and hopefully <laughs> I'll be the only one who knows it. So I guess I noticed that a few bands from America kind of come to the UK and get quite a good reception just because it's like almost an exotic kind of like, wow, you know, they've come to the art center in Norwich. This well, is the, big, the biggest exotic factor for us was the desert, the, the desert rock thing, you know, and so that, that was our other nexus to, you know, some, some group of bands. And so, um, you know, Giant Sand, Naked Prey, um, you know, bands from the Southwest, we were lumped into that as well. Um, <laughs> but I mean, that, that was, I mean, Guy, Guy did grow up in the desert, in the Mojave Desert, you know, so he did have that, you know, background and aesthetic, you know, so it made sense. But meanwhile, we lived in Davis and, um, but everyone in it, you know, when we first came to Europe, it was Italy and most of, most of Europe too, you know, they, they had this romantic vision that we were these, you know, crazy desert dwelling, you know, uh, people who, uh, you know, everything was a was sand and cacti, you know, <laughs> and, uh, and uh, we're, you know, uh, uh, surprised when they see pictures of what Davis looks like and it's not the desert, you know. No, I suppose we all want to sort of fantasize about that world of standing on the corner in Winslow, yeah. Arizona, don't we? And so, sort of big landscapes. We love big like landscapes. when you see those maps where they like, you know, just section off huge parts of the country and label them one thing, you know. <laughs> South, Southwest United States is a cactus. And so how does that affect the, the, the sort of psyche and the personality of a person who grows up in the desert? Because obviously it's romantic when you're in the UK and it's kind of snowing today and it's raining and then mm. it's sunny. And it's like that all the time and it's all very small and claustrophobic. Whereas being in those spaces, it must it must have quite an influence on the person. Yeah, I think so. I, I mean, I, I think Guy's writing, um, you, you know, he he made good use of that uh, and explored that, I should say, you know, quite a bit, at least in the first couple records. Um, but then sort of, you know, realized it was this, you know, too confining or, or you know, or had gotten ridiculous and, and flipped things upside down and, and went into a water theme, you know, an ocean-based theme with uh, uh, Captain Long Brown Finger and the Spanish Cave and uh, everything all of a sudden was aquatic, you know, but he was always <laughs> looking for, um, he, one common theme to his songwriting was uh, ge geography. He was very sort of, uh, uh, keen on on using geography as a poetic uh, as a as a poetic vehicle you know? yeah. um, and obviously the band the lineup it sort of settled very much with you and guy and a slightly changing sort of rhythm section so were, were you two the kind of the people who really held the the baton of the band and, and sort of knew how to keep it going for that period of time well, yeah, I mean, some of the some of the changeover uh, was uh, instigated by us, and some was instigated by by the players. 
It's a little, uh, you know, it's definitely something, uh, you know, a, a little regrettable because, you know, over time, a band, be, you know, the feeling of, of being a being a family or the camaraderie is not as strong, I suppose, as in other bands. Um, yeah, you know, um, the 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 well, the quick history is that uh, the original bass player and drummer, uh, a guy named Ke Kevin Stadahard on bass and 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 Joe Becker on on drums, uh, quit our band to join True West, and uh, you know. It, because True West at that time was was doing an album. I think it was produced by Tom Berlain and 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 they were going on tour and they and they might get signed by Island, which they never did. Um, and so those guys took off and then uh, we had that then we and then Joe Becker was fired from that band and came back to our our band. And so there's this constant turnover, and then there were just some personality problems, and then uh, you know, one thing led to to another. But uh, I I don't know for whatever reason, Guy and I uh, um, worked well together, um, and we were really interested in the a lot of the same stuff from a nuts and bolts sort of perspective. You know, the guitar guitar playing and and the guitar sounds and and that sort of work. Um, uh, you know, became, uh, uh, it, you know, the focus of, of what we were doing musically. Um, but, uh, yeah, um, I don't know what else to say about that, but uh, it, it would have been nice if we were able to hold together, you know, the core group the entire time. Yes, it's mm. always tricky. So when you came to record your first album, Exploring the Axis, it, um, did you have all the material sort of already written and rehearsed and, and sort of knew where you're going with it? Yeah, for the most part. We did, um, um, later on, we, we did a little bit more free, you know, experimentation in the studio and stuff, but we were uh, very uh, uh, hard hardworking as far as arranging and practicing the music um things were were uh kind of i mean there were there were parts of the music that were purposely improvised you know in sections um but uh generally we were very structured we work out material yeah and uh, were you enjoying and did you enjoy playing live at that stage um yeah um course we didn't you know we weren't touring until after the first record so we we didn't get to that stage of really i mean touring changes a band i think because um once you're on the road playing uh performing ev almost every night for months at a time you know that's when things really become uh um second nature and 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 just comfortable we our our live performances were were a bit uh erratic and unpredictable you know uh in the in the early early days um partly because we we just we just weren't comfortable yet <laughs> you know yeah. um so it it was a little spotty and our first tour was a little spotty too <laughs> um but uh 
yeah it, we we matured as a live band and uh and then you know in the later parts of the band when when matt Aberisk was playing drums especially we became a lot more um just a lot more powerful sounding of you know band the 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 energy the ability to to just do high energy performances increased yes um, but then but then you sort of followed up um exploring with moonhead and how had that process because obviously you, you were still on Fron frontier records so they must have been still feeling kind of happy and optimistic that things are going well and it also came out in 1987 which as i always think is probably the best year of music ever if you look at the albums that came out that year they're amazing yeah. so um yeah so how did how how were things kind of progressing with with the band and yourself well i think um uh, so Lisa Fancher, who runs Frontier Records, um, you know, I had mentioned the Island Records connection, but that all fell apart. And uh, she, with that first record, we had a, a, a larger budget, actually. Um, and uh, if you read the liner notes carefully, you'll notice the name uh, 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 Dennis Dragon and uh, Jeff Eirich, who are these guys that uh, Dennis Dragon was the brother of Daryl Dragon of Captain and Tennille. Oh, yes. Captain, who was the captain of Captain and Tennille. And he engineered that record and won a Grammy for it. And um, so we were sort of operating in a, in a more high-level L.A. production world. And the record was mastered at um, Fantasy or one, one of those big ocean, or I, I forget which one it was. But um. So that was like a higher production thing. And we had less money to spend on, on Moonhead, but we found a sympathetic uh, uh, person in, uh, um, what the heck's his name? McKenna, Paul McKenna? Yeah. Um, yes. And he was a engineer for a &M Records. He had had all this experience working with uh, 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 Herb Alpert, you know, on a and all that stuff. But he had his own small studio that was sort of his, you know, the projects that he wanted to do. And so, so this, it was the first of like a, of a series of working with producers who had access to good quality studio space, but they were willing to do an indie band because they liked the band you yeah. know, for a lower price. Um, so it was recorded in LA in his little personal studio, but, but it was quite nice, you know, small, but, a, you know, a good setup. Um, so we were always fortunate with, uh, with uh, finding uh, um, studios and producers that were willing to work with us for, for not too much money. Um, and um, yeah, we felt a lot, we felt a lot more comfortable in that studio session. Uh, the first one we were totally nervous and we thought we were we were prepared but we just didn't know how to how we felt working in a studio and we didn't really feel like we were in control of it as much and uh with moonhead uh, uh everything just felt uh more uh comfortable more mature and, and it felt like we were really driving every decision in the in the in the studio of, you know, yeah how we should proceed and, and what sounds good and what doesn't, you know. Uh, Paul McKenna wasn't trying to actually produce the album. He was facilitating and engineering it for us. You know? Yes. And was the band, did you feel much more confident with the second album and much more knowing what sort of sound you were looking for? 
Yeah. Um, um, myself, I mean, personally, I felt like I had grown a lot uh, as far as finding the tones uh, and that I like and, and, and being able to produce the sounds that, that I was hearing in my head. And the first, the first record, I felt my guitar found, sounded a bit um, harsh and, and just didn't have a, the, the quality. I mean, certain things sounded good, but others just sounded strange. But, you know, <clears throat> on the whole, like, honestly, when we were done with the first record and we listened to it, we were kind of horrified because that, we didn't sound like that live. And uh, it took me a long time to, uh, to appreciate it as, uh, as just like a different work of art, you know, than what we usually do. And so Moonhead sounded like the band sounded live. Yeah. Okay. And, that, and to us, that was important and that was, that was good. So with, with one of the tracks on Moonhead that um, was the big, was quite a collaboration with, with most of the band, which was the Crawl Piss Freeze, how did that, what was the, the story behind that particular um, track? Uh, the lyric is about a uh, friend uh, who uh, was suffering from uh, cancer and uh, uh, it was a sort of, uh, you know, frustrated uh, cry for how, you know, unfair uh, the world can be. Um, the uh, chord, you know, the chord progression that that guy wrote for it, I thought was fantastic. I, you know, I'm, I'm not sure where that came from, but uh, 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 it was a very interesting tune. <laughs> yes, absolutely. I, I sort of saw the the reviews of it, sort of mentioned apocalyptic death march and uh, a postcard from the edge. So obviously. We shortly after that we played a we played a show at the Roxy in L.A. and um, I noticed when we played that song, uh, the cocktail waitress was stopped dead in her tracks, just staring at the stage the entire time. <laughs> <laughs> and I thought, well, that's a good sign. Uh, she's she she works here every night and she sees every band and she's stopped in her tracks and 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 listening to this one so that's got to be good yes and one of the bands i remember discovering great excitement at some time in the 80s i think you know my brother used to have this kind of essential you know rock book which you know the essential albums or the best albums a thousand best records or something and i remember sort of going through this and trying to then find records in the library one of the albums or bands was spirit and the 12 dreams album featuring the great randy California and Ed Cassidy on drums. Did um, were you kind of influenced by bands like that? And I just wondered what sort of guitarists or musicians that you occasionally sort of try to emulate in some way. Yeah, well, actually, that that that's kind of one. I, I think that um, I forget the guy's name in in Big Brother, but a uh, uh, guy would often mention Big Brother and a holding com holding company. Um, as a as a influence and uh, uh, Quicksilver Messenger service, um, I kind of you know my my guitar influences were, um, like I say, a, a, a fair amount of, of uh, old uh, country, old country blues and and even you know Django Reinhardt and things like that. Um, but in but in the modern sound, I, I certainly like like most kids of the '70s, I fell in love with the 
with the fuzz tone and uh, and that sort of sound and and feedback and and all that. Yeah, I'm quite thrilled when I saw uh, is it Andy Gill the the Gang of Four guy <laughs> do his do his Anthrax feedback number at at uh, at the coffee house at UC Davis. I was like, that's the best. That's cool. Yeah, uh, but uh, yeah. Um, you know the the Stooges records, you know, were were great, um, uh, and it's hard not to love, uh, you know, the thick and crunchy and the fuzzy guitars. Um, not doing much of that nowadays, as my ears are, my ears uh, uh, suffered some of the damage of of doing that for ten years. So. Well, absolutely. So one one thing I did notice in the eighties with my my love of indie pop was that between the you know because I I put indie pop this is kind of my theory between the years of eighty three to eighty seven which is basically the years of the Smiths and uh, when they finished there was kind of like it felt like a bit of a chapter closed and then in this country there was the world that was ecstasy came along so suddenly the sixteen to eighteen year olds were looking for their sound the bands that had been around for three or four years suddenly looked a bit dated. And then, you know, so there was the rave culture with people like the Stone Roses and Primal Scream and the Happy Mondays got their sound. And then uh, on from that, you know, suddenly 4AD brought out, you know, like the Pixies and Throne Muses, and then you had Sub Pop and the, the whole grunge scene. So how did you, when you were bringing out your, your third album, which was kind of 88, and then obviously you still had two more albums kind of, you were basically bringing out an album a year. How were you sort of navigating, knowing things were, you know, the, what the, the record buying audience wanted to hear and knowing that things were changing quite rapidly? Um, well, the third album is almost, uh, uh, is, is the most tightly related to, to the second album in that we did it in the same studio. Uh, you know, we were so happy with Moonhead that we just, we, we sort of redid that whole scenario. Um, of course, Guy's songwriting was becoming more uh, free and open and, and, you know, he was injecting a lot more humor into it sometimes, you know, and just different feelings. Um, uh, I don't know. I think we weren't... Um, I love the Pixies, by the way, and I <laughs> loved them at the time. But we still felt we we still felt like we were apart, you know, uh, from the scenes, and so we didn't feel like we were being tugged in one direction or another stylistically. Um, uh, we um, the the concept of playing some of of having a single uh was hardly on our radar either yeah. uh, uh, so uh the music was uh, pretty inward looking and and just trying to explore uh the ideas that that we were coming up with and and uh and guys songwriting uh you know of course was uh uh the primary driver of it all um and he was pretty you know uh you know 
it's hard to compare them to other people. And uh, so, I don't know, we always felt like outsiders, uh, no matter what the scene was and whatever was happening. Um, we, when we, about that time was when we made it, our first trip to, uh, to Italy, which was our first trip to Europe at all. Yes. And uh, it was surprising because there, we were uh, on the radio in Italy along with popular bands and we had no idea. Um, and it seemed strange. And the only connection we could make was the, was the uh, uh, Ennio Morricone, you know, uh, Western desert <laughs> theme, you know, stuff. Oh, yes. Yeah. Uh, and so maybe it was a spaghetti Western commonality that we that we had or something, but um, we, I guess we felt that well maybe we could be popular maybe we could be a popular band it seems like you know these folks in Italy like us, um, and I suppose that was a big boost to our confidence at that point. Um, I'm not sure the exact timeline, but. Um, yeah, it must have been between uh, Moonhead and, and Spanish Cave that we made that trip. And the prospect of uh, touring in Europe was on our radar and stuff. Yeah. Did you ever okay. get to the UK? We made it. Yeah, we um, it took a, a couple of trips before we managed to to make it to London. I remember the first time we went, we played at the Sir George Roby. Oh, yes. Uh, and we had to kind of sneak through the border because we didn't have the proper work permits and such. Um, and then each trip we got deeper into into UK. Um, and uh, yeah, I mean, by the by the last couple of years there, we were uh, touring and, you know, maybe we'd play eight you know, six or eight dates and, you know, in between England and Scotland. We never made it to Ireland, though. No. Anyway. Uh, so how did you, because then by the, the last two albums, you have a bit of a, another kind of personnel change and a different drummer. Did that, did those two albums, what was the kind of atmosphere with the band like during that time? It was getting a little more, um, you know, uh, you know. I guess we we were getting a, a little more to a stage where we felt like, okay, we need to um, do better. We need to, you know, try to be a little more popular and 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 uh, um, make a video. <laughs> and although we'd made a few very low budget videos and stuff, but, um, and, uh, and I, you know, I, th I think part of it is just, you know, you, you're growing, you're getting a little older, a little more mature and, and you just naturally change a little bit. Um, but yeah, I guess our ambitions were starting to, to get bigger. Um, and we weren't so, uh, uh, introspective and and you know you know getting out and feeling more confident and um, that sort of thing. Uh, I think uh, you know well, I I don't want to talk about the, the specifics of uh, of all the 
the personnel changes, but um, um, the the bass player on on Moonhead left the band, quit the band, and uh, we found uh, John Von Felt from uh, from L.A. via uh, Denver. Uh, he was playing with some bands down down there, and at the same time, we met Matt, who became the drummer like a year after that or so. Um, so, um, uh, yeah, uh, the, the, let's see, the, the, the fourth album is uh, Sackful of Silver, and that one we recorded in San Francisco uh, with uh, Tom Mallon, who was uh, a drummer and producer of the American Music Club, and that was a band that, you know, was also on Frontier Records, and we right. friends with and stuff, and uh, he had this uh, really nice studio in San Francisco and we were working closer to home and we were trying to take, take control of, uh, of uh, our business, the, the business side of what we were doing and, and where we recorded and who we recorded with and, and this sort of stuff. Um, by the fifth album, uh, the interesting story about the fifth album is that um, uh, Butch Vig wanted to produce the record and approached us about it and wanted us to go to travel to Madison to do that. Um, and we decided we wanted to stay in California. And so he, uh, at that point, he did the Nirvana record instead. And uh, at the same time, and we were doing, we were both in LA. He came to LA to do that because they had a big budget because they were had signed to Geffen already. And um, so uh, we passed on having Butch Vig uh, produce the record, but then we found ourselves in LA while they were doing the record too. And and their manager was a, a good friend of ours. And and he was, was like, that, we should- Was that Danny Goldberg? No, their manager was uh, uh, John Silver, Silva. Right. Um, he was the manager of Sonic Youth and, uh, couple other bands and when Geffen signed Nirvana they said you know who do we have that can handle this band and the, and John got the gig and of course nobody knew that that the record would be so popular but uh, so we met up with them and 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 partied and the idea was that we were going to get together and play on each other's records while we were recording uh, the Ruby C and they were recording Nevermind but we never managed to get that together <laughs> but in retrospect that would have been a smart move uh, uh, yeah. So, yeah. So the so the so the member changes um, for Guy and I. We realized we were kind of bothered by that. Um, but yeah, it was just um, the circumstances were such that you know the most important thing was to just you know continue and. Uh, and find people who were in a position to uh, to uh, give it a hundred percent, and you know, be on the road all the time, yes. and, and all that. We were by that time we were spending probably seven months out of the year on tour, um, and another month or two recording. So it was very much a full time full time gig. God, you must have been shattered. Exhausted. And when you, I mean, did you meet the, the the members of Nirvana and talk about you know collaborating on each other's albums? Was that did you get that kind of close with each other? 
we got very close. <laughs> uh, uh, we went out and got drunk and uh, once, you know, uh, and it was a fun night. It was a, went out to a butthole surfer show actually. And Classic. Yeah. Nice. I guess there's no way you would have known that Nevermind was going to be quite so good. No, not at all. Yeah, they were just another indie band, you know, that just got signed to a major. Um, yes, absolutely. Yeah. Well, I saw them, they came to Norwich and they were supporting TAD and were played in front of like 200 yeah. people. And it was like, yeah, I like Bleach. You know, I thought Bleach was a good mm. album. And um, and funny enough, they came to Norwich again and played the waterfront and it didn't sell out at all. And they'd released Nevermind, but it hadn't actually quite come out, I think. So the promoter lost a huge amount of money on it. Um, mm. I think they had L7 tour, you know, in support. But if, it, if the gig had been a few months later, they would have been able to move it to a much bigger venue and he'd have made a fortune probably. So but instead he... Um, he, he lost a lot of money on that. So, um, yes, it's all about timing in music, really, isn't it? So when you went to record the, the fifth album, did you feel that this was going to be the last album of the band? Um, didn't know that yet, uh, but it was getting the... Uh, it, was, it was becoming clear that Guy was unhappy with uh, the lifestyle of it all and uh, was starting to voice concerns about that. And he always had trouble, he had a lot of trouble um, with, I mean, when you're in a band and you're on tour and you're on a label, it, uh, much of your life is uh, consists of being told uh, what to do and where to go and what time to be there, you know? And uh, it just rubbed him the wrong way, you know? we. Um, I, the, the thing I think of most is like we went to the we you know we did this tour of the Soviet Union in 1988, um, which obviously was highly unusual. You know we were like the first band to, to actually do a tour in in the Soviet Union, as far as I know. I mean there were some other bands that had played shows and so, and um, it was out of the blue and it it was it happened because of our Italian promoter having connections. Uh, and the Italian government doing a cultural exchange with, with uh, Moscow and uh, the Italian promoter saying, uh, putting together a group of bands to send and including us in the package. And it seemed like this fantastic opportunity and, but Guy didn't want to go and, and, but, you know, our manager and me and the rest of the band kind of insisted that we do it. And, um, he was not happy with that, <laughs> and uh, and you know, inevitably, I mean, we didn't we didn't have a lot of friction between the two of us, but I think just the whole grind of it, you know, after five or six years of of touring and making records and and uh, this constant, you know, hurry up and wait uh, lifestyle, where you're shuttled from place to place and you have to just get somewhere and wait. Um, was wearing on him and he was not enjoying it. Um, yes. So when, because when the album came out, what was, how long was it before the band decided that it was going to be over? I think that, I think the, the record came out in the fall and we proceeded to tour um, 
in 92. Uh, and um, I get, did it come out in, it must have, let's see, it must have come out in, in the fall of 91. Um, and we toured that in the fall and um, Guy announced that he wanted to quit, but then we convinced him to do the final tour in the summer of 92. Um, we played at uh, the Reading Festival in Roskelda and we played in Italy a few dates and then we did our final show at, uh, in Belgium, in Ghent, Belgium, and recorded um, the live album there. Uh, and yeah, yes. it took, took some convincing to get Guy to do the final tour. But we got a uh, we got a you know a, a documentary out of it and a live album, so that was good. Yes. Yeah. So, so did you have a moment where everyone sat down, or was it just kind of done by um, you know another party, or did you just sort of stop stop turning up at rehearsals? Uh, I just it was Guy calling me up and saying I want to quit the band, <laughs> and I kind of laughed because you can't you know you're like if you quit the band, the band's over, you know? Uh, it was a kind of a funny way to put it because it's not like we could replace Guy Kaiser yes. and continue with the group, yeah. So uh, it was disappointing because I, 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 you know, thought that we were, we were slowly but surely getting to, an, to, an, to a higher level of, you know, playing larger shows. And, um, but at the same time, I can, I, you know, I was sympathetic to and he just felt, felt like he was changing as a person and couldn't continue doing it. Yes, well, it's, it's, a, it's, it's not for the faint hearted. But then you went on and, and were in another band and now you, you're doing sort of more solo projects, aren't you? Right. Um, so I, I formed a new band called uh, Acme Rocket Quartet and it was all instrumental and a pretty eclectic um, oddball uh, music. Um, very much wanted to do something entirely different than Thin White Rope. So I even sold, I sold all my equipment, most of it, bought an old hollow body archtop and uh, put this band together that was kind of a pseudo jazz uh, surf rock band and did all the recording myself too. I, bu I bought the, you know, an open reel eight track and some microphones. And so it took an entirely DIY to it all. And we played in Northern California, San Francisco. And at that time in San Francisco, there was sort of this retro lounge music scene starting to happen. Yes, I remember uh, that. Um... And I remember there, there's, there was this band called Orange Sinfonettes that was essentially Tom Waits' band playing without Tom Waits. And, uh, and there was us, there was this bar on, on Mission Street called Bruno's. And it was a scene for a while. And uh, so we did some, but, but we didn't want to tour. A after six or seven years of touring, I, I, wanted to, I wasn't really interested in touring and the other guys in the band weren't in a situation where they could tour. Um, and um, we got some, we got the music out a little bit though. Uh, the uh, All Songs Considered uh, 
what's his name? The guy who does that, you know, NPR, like the band, and we got played on NPR some and stuff. But um, then I got married and had kids and uh, got really interested in, in acoustic music and bluegrass music. And uh, so 10 years ago, I, uh, all of a sudden I was in a band with Guy again for a while called a uh, bluegrass band called Doc Holler. But uh, that fell apart. And, um, and so now, now I'm getting interested in solo guitar playing. Yes, I saw on your Bandcamp page. What was it like when, when um, you got together with Guy again? Was that quite a nice experience or? Yeah, yeah. Um, it, it, was, it was actually a lot of fun. He wasn't really interested in doing original music. Um, more, you know, almost all traditional uh, bluegrass stuff. Um, and, uh, you know, it's silly, you know, it, um, we had a pretty good uh, uh, quartet together, and but the guitar player um, moved away and we never managed to, to replace him because I wasn't playing guitar, I was playing mandolin and the guy was playing banjo. Right. So imagine this very different... Uh, very different sounding band uh, than Thin White Rope. Yeah, that's fun. So what's on, I mean, you've got the, your sort of the music you put on Bandcamp, which I was listening to earlier, and obviously you're still loving playing music. Have you got any sort of other projects that are coming up this year? Um, a couple of, a few people in Europe have approached me about, uh, uh, collaborations, uh, you know, long distance collaborations. Um, so uh, I actually just played on a, on a cover of a Thin White Group song, <laughs> uh, which was odd, but I figured what the hell. Um, and uh, um, a guy from Belgium named uh, Luke Corley uh, is working on a project. I'm, I'm collaborating with him. Uh, and um, you know, um, I play in a uh, uh, sort of a retro country uh, honky-tonk band as well um, called Mike Blanchard and the Californios. Oh, nice. We actually released a record last year. Um, but, uh, yeah, the idea of playing um, solo, in, I mean... Uh, my whole life I've been focused on uh, guitar and mostly instrumental music. Mm. Uh, so I, in a way I'm, I'm happily uh, realizing that that's what I uh, have the opportunity and the temperament to do at this point. Um, and uh, I'm looking forward to making another uh, guitar record this year, I think. Yeah. Uh, whether or not I'll be able to uh, uh, get out on the road and, and, and travel, I'd love to come back to Europe sometime to play. I'm sure it'd be a very uh, at a very casual level, you know. Yes, I think house concert. You know, I'd love to get into the house concert scene and just focus on my guitar playing. Yes, um, absolutely. And then, but there's also there's always the opportunity to um, collaborate with other musicians. And uh, I did, you know, before the lockdown. Um, I met Stu Odom, the, uh, the last bass player in the band, uh, 
uh, did a gig with him in San Francisco, just sitting in with his band. And I also sat in with Russ Tolman from uh, uh, True West in Los Angeles at a show down there last before, the few months before the lockdown. And uh, was sort of happily thinking, oh, this is what I'm going to do more frequently. But then we've been uh, trapped in our homes for for a year. <laughs> yes. So yeah, I'm looking forward to getting out and 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 playing live music a, a lot more than I have been. Yes, absolutely. Well, hopefully that that will happen. And you, have you still? I mean, because I mean, with I mean, I'm sort of there's quite a few bands I love. I mean, and you know, people reforming. I always think, well whatever one thing as a fan you always hope that people still get on quite nicely i don't know why but it's it feels quite important if you love the music do you and guy still sort of communicate at all we do he lives uh he lives uh, pretty close to me um not in the same town he lives uh, uh about he lives in woodland which is just about 10 miles away uh, I don't see him really frequently, but uh, he's he's kind of he's he's a very private person. Um, but yeah, we're still friendly. No, that's always nice. I mean, it's um, yes. I mean, the, the music world and being a creative artist mm -hmm. is quite hard. I mean, you know, and I guess yeah, having to sort of go through that process. Does he still he's have fond memories of the band and recording, or does he just has he just moved away from it? Yeah. He's, uh, he also works for the university. He's probably going to retire, uh, and uh, I'm hoping he'll play more music. I, as far as I know, he hasn't been playing a lot of music lately. He told me he's interested in opera, and I didn't. I, I wasn't. It wasn't clear if he was talking about singing. <laughs> or just, <laughs> so, yeah, probably, probably the latter. But nice that'd be interesting. And just lastly, I mean, if you could have said something to a, a, a say a sixteen or eighteen year old self. He was starting out in that kind of interesting world that is kind of music and the creative industries, I suppose. I mean, if there was a couple of things you would love to have just whispered and you know, had someone just whisper mm -hmm. to you, what, what sort of kind of main points would you sort of just think, actually, that would be a really good thing? Or something that you've learned over the years and which then becomes some sort of wisdom or knowledge. I just wondered what that would be. Well, I... I don't have, you know, big uh, regrets about decisions or such, but I do wish I was more uh, to remain uh, open and positive. One thing about coming up in the period that I that I came up in music in and in the indie scene of the '80s, um, there was, and it was true, but how you handled it was just different. The fact that good music was not necessarily popular music and good bands were not necessarily successful. Mm. And that attitude drove me to uh, um, partially, you know, assume that, you know, making music is pure art. I'm not going to try to make money from this. Um, and, uh, you know, it, you just, have to keep an open mind. Um, we knew that we were seeing that our favorite bands were not making any money. And so we didn't assume that we could be uh, commercially uh, successful. Right. Um, 
and we were doing this and and in fact being on a major label was a was a bad idea <laughs> you know this sort of thing um and then musically um you got to keep your you know your you got to keep expanding and looking and learning uh, a variety of things, be they brand new music or old music. One thing about the 80s I thought that was beautiful was that everybody, um, the thing that was valued most, most was originality. Mm. But uh, the standards and traditions and all that stuff uh, was often ignored because nobody wants to hear a band play 40 year old jazz music or something, you know? And it was, there was sort of a, you know, if you're not careful, there's a negative attitude there about uh, the prospect of, of, of learning uh, traditional music or, or established music, that sort of thing. So people were, the, the, the mentality of being an outsider was so strong that it kind of keeps you from maybe engaging in all the music and all the people and the culture and the idea of being a professional musician, you know, all these things really? were kind of alien to us in the 1980s. Now I, you know, I, I, I love traditional music and I'd like to play more of it. And, uh, um, but you know, you, you, you grow, you know, you, you get older and you grow. Yes, well, this is this is true. No, that's interesting that point. Yeah. But yes, but anyway, look. Well, Roger, thank you ever so much for giving me the time for this. This has been fantastic. And um, if you want, I can always send you, you know, the link to the interview, and and um, you can always post it wherever you might, you know, have these things. I don't know what social media platforms you use, but it's been fantastic. So um, sure. Well, I'll, uh, I'd be happy to post it and uh, look forward to it. I looked up the site and then I was just starting starting to uh, delve into some of the other interviews. <laughs> just quite a lot. I know. This, uh, actually, when I started doing these interviews for the 80s, because um, I thought, yeah, that's fine. I didn't realize there was quite so many bands. Uh, <laughs> mm, yeah. <laughs> I know, it's a bit like, oh my God, there's more. Um, but no, it's fine. It, it's all good because it's quite nice. It's quite a nice thing to do because I think in a way, I think when things happen at the time, you just think that's fine and you just move on and you get on with your life. And sometimes then you look back, not with rose-tinted sunglasses, but with a certain different appreciation and think, actually, it's a lot, it's a lot better than I kind of remember. And there's a lot more bits that I kind of have missed because you just kind of, you know, there's a limited amount of time, resource and money and also accessibility. You couldn't always get to hear a record, even if you wanted to. If you've got a great review in a music magazine or paper, it was actually quite hard sometimes to get to hear the record because you couldn't just go online and listen to it. And you tried to go into a record shop and sometimes they went, no, I never heard of that. And you went, oh, okay, I'll go away then. So um, yeah, it's been, it's been fascinating because everyone, you know, took it really seriously actually back in those days. And that's, that's quite amazing, you know, how committed and artistic people were on their craft. You know, it was like, even if a band only lasted three years, they, they gave it everything in that period that, you know, when you listen to the music, it actually is quite, it's a lot better than I, I kind of remember it in a weird way. Yeah, well, I, I love that you're, you're doing this and so many people are, you know, I mean, the, 
the great thing about social media is uh, the availability of all this information <laughs> and <laughs> re and recon and honestly reconnecting. I mean, uh, you know, so many people I knew and and you know was I was friends with at the time or just was excited to to meet at the time. You know, I, I I've reconnected with and. Um, <laughs> that's kind of amazing and it fills in the gaps in my memory because there are many um we spent much of our time drinking on the road so um that kind of blurred things a bit i think and uh uh just it's been fantastic to to fill in a lot of the gaps and uh yes well i i have noticed the the world of archiving has really happened yeah. in the last 5 years there's, there's been a lot, quite a lot of films you know that have come out there was one the other week on the Nightingales with Robert Lloyd and Ned Wade being one on the wedding present and George Best, Best and the Chills from New Zealand and the go-betweens from Australia and the Dolly Mitchells who were a really tiny little band and the Slits L7 and also last year there was books on you know photographers who I'm just looking at them um Texas there was a you know from the 80s kind of hardcore scene and there was another one who did one called punk post-punk new wave and he did stuff in Boston, and another guy who got these, I think people have got these negatives that they'd stuffed in a shoebox, probably a bit better than the shoebox, and went, that's fine, got on with the rest of their life, and then someone went, my God, these these photographs are amazing, you just, you know, we yeah. can put these in a book, so it's been, it's been brilliant, actually, seeing the archiving mm -hmm. of, of stuff, because, um, I think you get to a bit of a crossroads where, you know, someone just looks and says, shall we just chuck it? Or should we do something with it? We've got to do one or the other now. You can't keep just keeping it in wherever you are. Um, let's let's do something quite creative with it. And with a lot of it, it's just been, I suppose the work has been amazing. You know, it's like the, this book on the Texas scene and someone's done another one on Athens, Georgia. And you're thinking, okay, that's, that's fantastic. I'm glad someone spent three years of their life doing it of my my amusement so yeah. no it's really great yes well look roger i'll let you go but um thanks again for your time and um i'll keep in touch yes thank you okay take care there see you later right. bye bye okay and that dear listener is how you finish a conversation <laughs> or not anyway look i'm english we like to fumble around and that is also the end not of everything. That was the end of the interview with Roger. A big thank you for giving me the time for that interview. And um, if you want to know any more information about them, just Google away and you'll see stuff around here, there and everywhere. And also Roger has got a Bandcamp page as well. So he's got music there. Anyway, if you want to contact me for some lovely reason, make it positive, you can on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, do C86 show. Otherwise, all these have been archived, all these interviews. So you can find those on Spotify, iTunes. And Podbean is true. Anyway, look, have a great week. Stay safe.